Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, Prove It. In this five-part series, we'll see how God's Word instructs and equips us to live with the various challenges to our faith. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. You know, sometimes when you and I read the Bible, sometimes we get the feeling that there's a lot of pressure to always be good. Now, recently I read a story about a man who felt that pressure to always do the right thing, to always be good. And so he thought that maybe the best way to escape the pressure from work, the pressure from life, the pressure from everything that he was feeling to be good all the time was to join a monastery. So he joined a silent monastery, a monastery where the monks take a vow of silence. And and every five years, they could check in with their superior and they could speak only two words. So he went into the program. He began to do what he was supposed to do. And after five years, he got to to meet with his superior. And as he did, his superior said, you have two words. So what would you like to say? And he said this, bad food. The superior was a little bit shocked, but he said, well, note that. And of course, then he went back to his next five years. And after five years, he came back and he checked in with his superior. He says, all right, you have two words. What would you like to say today? And he goes, hard bed. The superior said, okay. So five more years go by and he comes back and he checks in with his superior and he says, what would you like to tell me this time? And he stood up and he said, I quit. (laughs) Superior said, well, it doesn't surprise me because all you've ever done since you got here is complain. (laughs) So we're not going to be talking about how to be good all the time, but we are going to talk about something that may feel that way. We're going to be talking about righteousness. And, you know, when you hear the fact that, you know, as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to pursue righteousness, you may feel overwhelmed. You may say, I give up because it seems like an unrealistic expectation. And as I know that you've become aware of, we're studying the letter of 1 John written by the Apostle John. And in it, he wrote to encourage followers of Jesus in the first century about what true faith in Jesus looks like. And even for them to be able to know how they have it. In other words, to be able to prove it to themselves, not not to other people. So, Big picture, when it comes to righteousness, I'll tell you what God's word says. In the book of Romans, we read this, no one is righteous, not even one. So there you go, sort of lets you off the hook, but we know there actually is somebody who is righteous. He lived a fully human life, and yet he was fully God. And the Bible tells us this, Jesus is the righteous one. So going back to the first letter of John, in the second chapter, this is what we read. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the righteous one? Saying that he's the righteous one is is making a statement about who he was, how he lived, and what he did and who he is today. So let's unpack that. Let's talk about who Jesus was 
when he lived on this earth. So in the New Testament, we see that all the apostles who lived with and learned from Jesus all came to the same conclusion about who Jesus was when he was on earth. Peter and John, and then eventually the apostle Paul, all refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, what does that mean to call Jesus the Lamb of God? So we've got to back up in biblical history and go back to the, the book of Exodus where we see the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they've been taken into captivity in Egypt. They are slaves in Egypt. And so God sends Moses to tell, the, to tell Pharaoh to release his people. And when Pharaoh refuses, God sends a series of plagues. The very last plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And so God is going to send the angel of death over all of Egypt, and he will strike down the firstborn of every animal and every human. But God gives an escape to the people of Israel. He says to the people of Israel, what you need to do is you need to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. You need to sacrifice it, and you need to take the blood from that lamb and paint the door frames of your house with that blood. Now, it sounds a little gross to us in 2022, but that's what God told them to do so that when the angel of death came through Egypt, the angel would see the blood painted on the door frames, and the angel of death would pass over the children of Israel. But you saw the requirement, a perfect, spotless lamb without blemish. Well, the apostles came to understand that Jesus was our perfect, spotless lamb without blemish who was sacrificed on our behalf so that even though we will physically die someday, the angel of death will pass over our eternal damnation. In other words, we will not be sentenced to eternity separated from God because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Back to 1 John, the second verse of chapter 2, he says this, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus' sacrificial death Atone for our sins. To atone for something means to make amends for, to, to pay the price for, to compensate for something. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He compensated the debt we owed through his death because he is the righteous one. So that's what Jesus did. Let's talk about how he lived. To be called the righteous one would mean that you would have to do more than live a good life. You would have to live a perfect life. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus understands what it's like to be human. It says he understands our every weakness because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. Living a sinless life would be miraculous for us as humans, but it wasn't for Jesus. He lived a sinless life. Now, Sometimes when I talk about the fact that Jesus was completely sinless, people will have objections. They'll ask me questions. Probably the favorite question people ask is, what about when Jesus went into Jerusalem and he went into the temple and he cleared the temple of all the money changers and all the people selling animals? Didn't he sin there? Well, the reality is 
He didn't send there. You see, you need to understand a little bit about temple worship. So in first century Israel, if you were going to the temple, one of the things that every Jewish person had to do was pay a temple tax on an annual basis. But you couldn't pay that with Roman coins or coins from Egypt or coins from Samaria. You had to use Jewish coins. And so that meant there needed to be someplace where you could exchange your money. Well, seeing an opportunity to take advantage of, money changers set up shop in the temple courts. And it wasn't a a fair exchange. It wasn't a, a dollar for a dollar, to use our terminology. There was fees. There were fees added on to this exchange. In fact, there was extortion going on. People were being taken advantage. Sin was happening in the very courts of the temple. And then there were those pilgrims who traveled from a far distance and and were coming to worship God. They wanted to make a sacrifice, a sacrificial offering for their sins. But because they came from a far distance, they couldn't bring their own lamb or their own pigeons or whatever it was that they were going to offer. So they needed someplace in Jerusalem to purchase those animals to be sacrificed. Again, Business people saw something to take advantage of. So they set up stalls in the courts of the temple where animals could be bought and purchased. And and they weren't fair market value animals. They were animals, the price had been jacked up really high. You know what it's like when you go to a sporting event and you go up to the counter to buy a Coke. It costs $7 there. It would be less than a dollar at home. So, So you understand what's going on. Well, Jesus kick these people out of the courts. It was righteous anger. He wasn't sinning there. He was doing God's bidding by maintaining the fact that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer and worship, not a place where people would be extorted from their money and people would be taken advantage of. So that's what Jesus, how Jesus lived. Now let's talk about what he did. So Paul tells us this, that that what Jesus did was this, and he compares him to the very first person, Adam. So let me read from the book of Romans, chapter five. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, all of us. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death Through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all the people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what this passage describes is what theologians call imputed righteousness. 
You see, we need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us because we have no righteousness of our own. We are sinners by nature, and we cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot place ourselves in a right standing with God. We need God's righteousness imputed to us, meaning we need his holiness before God credited it to our account. He gives us his righteousness, his holiness, so we can be made righteous with God. Jesus, the righteous one, does that. And there's one more thing. You may have noticed it in the scriptures that I read. Jesus did this and continues to do this for us. In verse 2, the, the second part of it, excuse me, in verse 1, the second part of it, we read this. If anyone does sin... We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So, so like, like an attorney pleads for his client, Jesus pleads for us to God, for our forgiveness, saying, listen, by my blood, I've imputed righteousness to them. They've accepted me, and they're forgiven. So this is, this is good news for all of us who know who Jesus is. He is the righteous one who makes us righteous. But knowing what Jesus has done does require a response, a response from us. Just like when you became a follower of Jesus, you believed that Jesus died to pay for your fin sins, but you had to accept that forgiveness and then you had to leave, live your life following Jesus, not just giving intellectual assent and saying, oh, yeah, I believe that. But that belief needed to translate into how you lived, not out of a works righteousness thing, but it's a demonstration. It proves that you are a follower of Jesus. So the fact is this, is Jesus is the righteous one. But, but he's imputed his righteousness to us. And so to live a righteous life means that we accept that and we let his righteousness become part of who we are. In other words, we see what it looks like and we begin to live in that. So to, to believe that Jesus has made us righteous then means this, that we will walk in righteousness. In other words, live our lives that way. At the end of chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 of John, of 1 John, we see what it looks like to walk in or to live in righteousness. This is what he writes. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So he's making the point that living in righteousness is not a prerequisite to becoming a Christian or, as he says, to be born of God, but rather living in righteousness is a consequence of being born again or becoming a believer of Jesus. Believers don't just believe, they follow. And the more we believe and follow him, honestly, the more we begin to embrace that righteousness and walk in it. Now, John goes on in chapter 3, and he writes this. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. 
No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Interesting here, the uh, the Apostle John is addressing the false teachers who were not teaching the truth about what Jesus did and what it means to be his follower. And, And he said, John, that doing the right thing is righteous and it means that you're following Jesus because being sinful means you're following the devil. But, but John goes on and he continues to say that if we're born of God, we can't go on sinning because God's seed remains in us. Remember this, when you became a follower of Jesus, God poured out his Holy Spirit into you. That represents that seed of faith. And so the Holy Spirit is living in each and every one of us who believes in Jesus. And he is there to guide us, to teach us, and to comfort us. And, and he's going to prompt us after righteous ways and prompt us not to follow the ways of the devil. It's that, that seed of faith that's there. And, and this is the beginning of our sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more righteous. Big picture, though. While we'll never completely arrive at perfection, each of us, as we follow Jesus, will become more aware of what it means to be faithful and obedient to him, to, to be righteous. It means that we will see what we should do and do it and what we shouldn't do and strive not to do it. John goes on and he writes this. Anyone who does what is right, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So he's telling us there what the right thing is to do, the righteous thing. It's loving our brother and sister in Christ. It's telling us that to love our fellow Christ followers is an expression, maybe even the greatest expression of righteousness. One scholar explains it this way. Righteousness and love are inseparable. Since they are inseparable in the character of God and in his revelation in Christ, so they must also be inseparable in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Righteousness involves the fulfillment of all law of relation, in our relationship with God and our relationship with humanity. Not in a legalistic way, but, but as we seek to carry out what it means to follow Jesus. The love of one follower of Jesus for another follower of Jesus Rest on this sense of divine fellowship that we have believing in him. So if we love our brother and sister in Christ, we're walking in righteousness. If we're not loving our brother and sister in Christ, then we're following the devil and we're not walking in righteousness. Think that through when you recognize that in 2022, we live in in probably the most contentious time in our lifetime and we see brothers and sisters in Christ going against each other for things that don't rate as high as following Jesus Christ. In fact, all of those things, politics and social issues, come much lower than following Jesus. So we have to recognize that following him is supreme in every other area of our lives. We don't get to compartmentalize life as followers of Jesus. 
So then, as we follow Jesus and his righteousness, we prove that we are walking in that righteousness by loving one another. But let's drill down a, a little deeper and see how that, that love expresses itself in some actions, not just warm, fuzzy feelings. But let's look at that. And, and uh, first of all, it means this. It means that you and I will recognize our unrighteousness and confront it. For me, when I read 1 John, I always come back to these verses in the first chapter because they're verses I memorized a long time ago, but they speak so much truth. So let me read it to you. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What this means is that you and I have to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves about our own sin nature. The Bible says that we're all sinners. The Bible also says that we're forgiven, but we have to make sure we deal with the reality that we will sin again. That means that we have to acknowledge that we're sinners. When we see our sin, we have to confess it and repent. That means to turn around and go the other way from that. And we honestly need to do this with some regularity. It, it can't be just something that we do uh, once a month or uh, you know, once a year. It's something that we really need to recognize. So let me just be completely transparent with you. Uh, a lot of you know I like to go out and hike and run on trails. And uh, some of you know that over my history of uh, being on trails, uh, I've had numerous good encounters with dogs and numerous bad encounters with dogs. Um, and it's generally dogs that are off leash. So the other day I was out running on some trails in Granby and all of a sudden I was surrounded by three off leash dogs. The owner wasn't around. One of them's getting really aggressive with me. So I've just learned I stand still and wait. And so when the owner comes up, you know, I said, listen, you know, there's a, there's a leash law to be for the right to use this public space. And he got upset with me. And I got upset back, and I felt like as we parted ways that I had just been filled with righteous anger. <laughs> and as the day wore on, I felt that conviction of the Holy Spirit who said, you know, you had some righteous words, but you also had some unrighteous, sinful words and so I confessed my sin to God, and um, I don't know who that gentleman was. If I ever see him again, I will apologize. In fact, I, I, I wish I had turned my car around and gone back to find him and apologize, but I didn't. So, uh, you know, again, uh, that demonstrates the fact that I'm a sinner and the fact that I need to basically pay attention to the fact that I am as prone to sin as anybody else. So if you're wondering why I'm being that transparent, it's because the Bible makes it clear. We're supposed to confront our own unrighteousness and confess our sin. And doing that helps us walk in righteousness. 
So not only do we need to confront our unrighteousness, we also need to crave righteousness. Jesus said this. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean to to hunger and and thirst for righteousness? As I studied different scholars and what they wrote about it, I came to the conclusion of this, that to to hunger and to thirst for righteousness is to crave it for our own lives, to crave it for how we follow and live out Jesus' teachings in our lives, that we crave the righteousness of God so that we can be found more righteous than not, not out of a good works idea, but so that we can be messengers of the righteousness of God to the world that will translate into mercy and justice. And we do these things not just for our own personal benefit, but we do these things to bless the world and help usher in a little bit of the kingdom of God every time we do it. Now, when you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, I think it becomes very clear to us that he lived in a pluralistic society where there were many fates, when there were many types of laws and morals, and basically, it was an anything-goes culture, which basically is where we live today. But I want you to notice something about the Apostle Paul. He said that Christians should not live in a way that is self-promoting, but rather, he said, we're supposed to live in that culture in a way that is self-denying. Let me share with you what I mean. In the letter to the Corinthian church, he he wrote this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And then to, in the letter to the church at Philippi, he, he goes on an extended uh, teaching about who Jesus is, and that's in chapter 2. And this is what he says to us. Do not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, in value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but to each, but each of you to the interest of others. And then he goes on. And he makes it very clear how Jesus did that for you and me. Jesus didn't look out for his own interests. He looked out for the interest of us, for the interest of the world. Why? So that he could give righteousness and eternal life to us. So I was thinking about that as we live here over 2,000 years later from when Paul wrote that. If we want to make a difference in 2022, we have to consider how we can help others and serve others. We need to be generous. We need to serve and not look to be served. We need to actually limit our rights so that we can bless others. And we need to make sure that we're not walking around in this life that we live demanding our rights over others. Now, we need to recognize that we should not conflate what it means to be a citizen of a country and what it means to be a citizen 
of the kingdom of God. What do I mean? Well, very simply, if you're a citizen of the United States, you've been guaranteed certain unalienable rights, as it says in our Constitution. We call it the Bill of Rights. But that Bill of Rights is for the Republic of the United States of America. It's not for the kingdom of God. So we can't conflate the two. You know, the rights that we have as citizens of this country don't necessarily translate as to rights into the kingdom of God. We need to make sure that we are walking as Jesus wants us to, that we walk in righteousness, that, that we crave that righteousness. And that's going to mean at times, more than we like to admit, we're going to have to take second place to serve others in the righteousness in which Jesus modeled for us. Finally, to walk in righteousness means that we will prioritize righteousness. So Jesus said this. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seeking first the kingdom of God is to desire to participate in all the things of the kingdom of God rather than our own kingdom. This means that we look for every opportunity to expand more fully Jesus' already established rules in our lives. Rule, not rules, rule in our lives and in the world. And in anticipation of the day when followers of Jesus will reign with him when he returns to fully establish his kingdom on earth. In the book of Romans, Paul writes a, a very strong metaphor uh, to talk to us about prioritizing righteousness. So, so listen to these words. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led even deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. Now that's, that's a, a radical metaphor that he uses, but it's, but it's one that we understand. You know, uh, being a slave to sin is meaning that sin is going to take us where it wants to go. Being a slave to righteousness means to be a follower of Jesus, to, to basically say, listen, he served me, now I want to serve him as I follow him. And when we do that, that adds joy and happiness to our lives because we recognize that we're walking in the way that he's called us to walk that we're seeking his kingdom above all other things and his righteousness. So as I bring this message to a close, and I want to invite the worship team to come on up, I want us to recognize that, that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And, and he has called us to, to walk in righteousness, and, and that means that we will seek to follow him. And as we follow him, he will continue to work in our lives, and we will see more and more opportunities to follow him in that righteousness and be God-honoring men and women of Jesus. Now today, as I bring this message to a close, I want to pray for us that we would see the righteousness of Jesus, and we would desire it, and we would follow after it, and we would do all of the things that we looked at in Scripture. Now, for some of you, this might seem a little odd because you're not a follower of Jesus but you may want to become a follower of Jesus. So if that is you, I'm also going to give you the opportunity to, to pray a simple prayer during this prayer that you can become a follower. And if you pray that 
prayer, please let me know. You can send us an email at connect at valleybrook.cc and we would love to put some materials in your hands to help you grow in your faith in that decision. So if you would, bow your heads and let's pray. God, as we come into this place today, we come knowing that you are the righteous one and it's our desire to follow you in your righteousness and to embrace what you've called us to do. So Lord, I pray that for all of us. And Lord, I pray specifically for anyone who's never made you the Lord of their lives, that if you wanna do that, please pray these words silently back to God. Here's the first phrase I'll give you to pray to him. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died to pay for my sins. I accept his forgiveness. Now I want to follow him. And we'll say amen to that prayer. And I'll conclude this prayer with these words. God, I pray that you would guide each and every one of us to follow the Holy Spirit's leading that you poured into each one of us, to seek to do righteousness for your glory, not for our glory, to seek to serve others for your glory, not our glory, to seek to be your sons and daughters as we follow you all the days of our life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand for our closing song? Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.